exploration at its heart is about about expanding our consciousness and our understanding of, of connections between things we maybe didn't expect were connected. And uh, so for me now, it's much more almost a poetic process, like uh, so, sort of unearthing metaphors. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is part of my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way. I chat with adventure writer Kate Harris, who I quote in four different sections of the new book. Her 2018 book, Lands of Lost Borders, is in fact the subject of an entire miniature chapter entitled Reinvent What It Means to Be an Explorer, which I'll read here. The epigraph is from her book and reads, quote, Perhaps the great task of modern explorers is not to conquer, but to connect, to reveal how any given thing leads to another. Here's the chapter itself. When Kate Harris was growing up in Canada, she felt destined for a life of exploration. The more she read about the swashbuckling explorer philosophers of days gone by, however, the more she began to realize that planet Earth and its rugged, inaccessible places had long since been mapped. Demoralized by the limitations of terrestrial exploration, Kate decided she was going to explore the planet Mars instead. Part of the conceit of our received notions about exploration and discovery is that even those storied explorers of days gone by typically carried out their physical feats in landscapes occupied by people who already lived there. Just as David Livingstone's purported discovery of Victoria Falls would have come as a surprise to the Africans who lived nearby, William Lewis and Meriwether Clark famously depended upon the assistance of indigenous North Americans as they explored North America. Kate Harris has not yet been to Mars. She eventually decided to embrace exploration by reinventing her notion of what it meant to be an explorer. Quitting a high-level but ultimately unsatisfying career in academic science research, she set out on an open-ended bicycle journey that wound up taking her nearly 6,000 miles across Central Asia. Along the way, her experiences allowed her to make richer, humbler sense of her childhood dreams. Exploring is an attitude, she wrote in her book Lands of Lost Borders, a quality of attention to the world around you. Exploration demands a refusal of all the usual maps of the world and of how you're told to live your one and only life. Now today on Deviate, I chat with Kate Harris about exploration. This is actually a remix of the conversation she and I had back in episode 123. We talk about the Silk Road bicycle trip she recounts in Lands of Lost Borders and how any good journey, be it to outer space or the Himalayan Plateau or the Yukon-Alaska border region in British Columbia that Kate now calls home, has a way of exploring not just a place, but the deepest questions about ourselves and the universe. Let's listen in. In a way, travel itself forces one to unpack the very idea of exploration. Um, and just what it is one is exploring and discovering. So how did actual travel change your relationship to the idea of relation of exploration that you dreamt about when you were young? Yeah, well, certainly my idea of exploration when I was young was pretty, um, uh, classical, I guess, like uncovering new facts, going to new places, drawing new maps. Um, that novelty was really, key to it. I mean, that's a whole idea behind historic exploration is, um, you're, you're, you're exploring what is unknown and making it known. And as I've gotten older, I think, um, my ideas around exploration have become more, more nuanced, maybe more cynical. Um, 
nuance in the sense that you you don't have to you know leave the foot first footprint somewhere or plant the first flag to participate in in the spirit of exploration which is really about like challenging your sense of things um and so precedent is not and i don't think should be a, a big part of it precedent sort of only matters today in terms of getting like corporate sponsorships for for guinness book setting record setting um expeditions but i i really think exploration at its heart is about about expanding our consciousness and our understanding of of connections between things we maybe didn't expect were connected and uh so for me now it's much more almost a poetic process like uh sort of unearthing metaphors about um the world that that link previously disparate things that somehow can come together and make a total sense of of what you're trying to understand uh, so it's a pretty vague answer but <laughs> Well, did you feel like you discovered something? Again, uh, we don't want to spoiler alert things too much, but what does it feel like, you know, just to reconcile your early dreams with your actual uh, travels? What sort of things you feel? Do you feel like you discovered, or that surprised you, or really satisfied you through through the process of your journeys around the world? Well, one one sort of common refrain you hear from astronauts when they've come back from space, especially those that have, yeah been in low earth orbit for a long time but but also even briefly is this this deepened sense of connection to the place they've just left namely the earth that is that is all our our collective home and um uh, maybe a heightened fondness for their for this this little blue and green bubble of life in a pretty vast and um empty cosmos and I feel in a way you don't have to go to low earth orbit to, to get that advantage on, on how incredible it is that, that this place exists, that we exist here. Um, and it, it's the kind of perspective that really realigns priorities. You know, the, the, it's the, the cliche now that astronauts say, you know, you can't see borders from space and, um, in a way you can't, when you travel, although you keep banging up against them in bureaucratic ways, but, um, you meet people, you realize there really is this universality to, to, um, experience of being human on earth. And I think just through biking the Silk Road at a very you know, slow, meandering, wandering pace and seeing a swath of, of the world as a result, um, I just feel this deep sense of, of loyalty to it. You know, I think this is, this is the only home we've got and this is where we've all got to figure out how we relate to each other and how we're going to keep the whole, whole planet going. Um, whereas before it, when I was younger, like I would have gone to Mars in a heartbeat. I would have left behind everything I knew and loved on this planet to, to go to this, um, pretty barren rock that's, that's so far away. Um, you know, years of travel to get there. And I can't imagine that now. Like I can't, I, I just have so much love and connection for this place that, um, and I think travel, you know, travel is to fall in love with the world and to be heartbroken by it and then to love it still. And eventually to learn to call it home. 
And I, I feel like that's where the trip took me. Well, let's talk uh, in concrete terms about your trip, because I think some people who are listening who haven't read your book are probably thinking, wow, she's using a lot of outer space metaphors for, to describe <laughs> right. a, a trip that I thought was along the Silk Road through Central Asia. So um, where did it start? Where did it end? And where did you go along the way? So the trip started in Istanbul in Turkey, and we biked um, through a total of 10 countries to lay in northern India. So we went through a bunch of the stands, um, and it took us 10 months in total. And there was a previous trip. So that was sort of one that, that I would hesitate to say like the complete Silk Road because there are so many versions of the Silk Road, but it was one sort of through line from Europe to Asia. Whereas our previous trip, which inspired this, this second longer trip on which the book is based, um, that was just four months in a isolated chunk of uh, China, so in Xinjiang and Tibet. And those trips were five years apart. And the book covers them both as well as what uh, prompted them. And yeah, Mars does come up a lot. I was interested that like sometimes your your most difficult moments aren't necessarily in your most isolated areas. Uh, I, I know that in Turkey, there were some, some rainstorms that made things miserable for a while. And then there were oftentimes you weren't in empty Mars-like wilderness. There were oftentimes where you were going through very civilized areas um, around a lot of people. Uh, so as you went through this journey, what did you discover and what? how did your thought process about this part of the world change? Yeah, well, it was interesting because Mel and I, um, so Mel is my, my best friend since we were 10 years old and she came on the trip with me for those that haven't read the book. Um, we reacted very differently to different stretches of the Silk Road. It was interesting to have her as a kind of foil for my own experience uh, because, yeah, I, I felt sort of most joyful and comfortable in the really isolated remote stretches um, and most challenged in in busy cities and um, busy road on busy roads. Whereas Mel, it's not that she didn't love the isolated stretches as well. She was, you know, entranced by them, but she's, she's much more savvy in, in the human realm, I guess. And, um, you know, the Silk Road forces you to sort of confront both. And um, one of, one of the things that's amazing about that stretch of the world is that, you know, Marco Polo in his day, he, he cursed all the places like the mountains and the deserts that, that really compelled me. And, um, those were, those were historic borderlands in the sense that they separated cultures and separated, um, people. And, and you go now and, and not much has changed in that sense. You know, the populated places are still quite populated and the relatively empty, um, expanses are still relatively empty and, and, um, not as densely populated. And so it was weirdly like continuous as an experience with what Marco Polo saw. Um, and yet uh, because of this, this day and age and the culture that I come from and the books I've read, you know, I'm primed to appreciate places differently. And I certainly appreciated, uh, the mountains and deserts in ways that he, he never did. You expressed a kind of disappointment with Marco Polo because when you were young, you were so fascinated by his journeys. But the more you read Marco Polo, the more you realized that he was sort of a merchant who wanted to do his business and, and get around the world and not really revel in empty spaces. 
Yeah. Yeah. I went from idolizing him as a kid, as a sort of romantic explorer figure to really feeling crushed by the, the truth of who he was. Um, when I read more of his, um, read more about him and read the unabridged edition of his travels when I was at university to having, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm pretty hard on him in the book and, um, fair enough. You know, he was, he was motivated by, by profit. He was a merchant. He dealt in commodities. Um, but I also am, am pretty in awe of what he did, you know, coming out of, out of, um, Venice at the age of 17 and, and moving through the world the way he did. Um, it was, it was pretty remarkable for that day and age. And, and it is still, so I think there's a huge difference probably in, in Marco Polo, the, the man, you know, what motivated him in, in truth, in, in reality and what sort of he reported in, in this book. Yeah, one thing, having studied Marco Polo quite a bit myself, is just how many other Europeans he ran to, into on the other side of the world. And it's just like, well, what if everybody had written their Wrote book? Wrote about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was a yeah, rich accounting that would be. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned Mel and how she's savvier in human relations. Is that part of the reason why you brought her, not just because she's been your friend <laughs> since age 10, but because she could sort of help you navigate the, <laughs> the populated Absolutely. areas? Absolutely. Yeah, no, she's a huge asset in that sense. Um, and I think, yeah, we really, we're a pretty amazing team, like very complimentary skills. And, you know, we both enjoy people. We love meeting new people and hearing their stories. Um, I think I, I just have less endurance in that respect than she does. And she's so personable. Like everyone who meets Mel just adores her. She's funny. She's kind and interested in people and interesting and, um, yeah, she can just get along with with anyone. So that certainly smooths the way through through um, all the stands and and most of the Silk Road. Did you ever wish you were completely by yourself, or are you so easy with Mel that it's not that much of a problem? Yeah, I I never wished I was by myself. I I felt like one of the reasons we can travel so well together is that, um, and I write about this in the book. Like we we're, we're good at being alone together. Like hmm. we don't feel the need to, um, always interact or, or always sort of share our thoughts or keep up a conversation because it'd be awkward if there things fell into a long silence. Like we, we dwell very comfortably in the long silences and on a bike trip, you are alone most of the time. You know, she might've been ahead of me on the road or behind me, but generally we had to ride single file and generally there'd be, a, um, you know, decent distance between us like hundred meters or something. Um, and when you're on your, your bike, you like, you can't really chat. You're, you're sort of in your own head and, and paying a, a torrential attention to the world around you. And those were these sort of moments of solitude that then, you know, when we be camping at night, it was nice to have company because you are, you are alone a lot of the time in your own head or in the, in the world in an intense way. Um, even as you're traveling with someone else and we're kind of like siblings at this point, like we've known each other for so long and have been through such like ups and downs, um, in our own friendship. And, um, she's such a good read on me and, and vice versa that even if 
yeah, we would get in, we would definitely get into arguments, each of us wanting to do something different in a particular place or just being at the end of our rope. And then we're just over it when it's over. Like, so like, yeah, with my brothers, it's similar. (laughs) Your book is called Lands of Lost Borders. uh, And it feels like the, the philosophical idea of borders plays a pretty big role. I mean, your book isn't lands of lost empires or lands of lost water bottles. Um, (laughs) and, and you talk about how historically borders were very much defined by emptiness or by mountains or by rivers and oceans was a part of the reason why you chose to bicycle through this area, just to sort of feel that wide open space and emptiness and sort of wrap your head around the idea of what a frontier is. Yeah, absolutely. And that, so essentially the first trip on the Silk Road, that four month section just in China in, um, when we just graduated university, you know, it was a lark. Like we just went for fun, but while we were there, you know, we, we snuck into the Tibetan autonomous region and, um, we went through, we went to great lengths to sneak in and it turned out not to be necessary at all at the time. Um, but it, it wasn't that the, the borders or boundaries, the checkpoints around the Tibetan autonomous region, um, didn't matter. It's just, they didn't matter to us as sort of privileged Westerners with passports that have meaning. Um, they mattered very much to Tibetans who, whose movements were severely restricted by them. And so that was the first time I really had to confront how borders exist more for some people than others. And, um, it was also bizarre to be biking through this region called the Aksai Chin on that first trip. And it's this contested territory between China, Tibet, and India. And it's the most desolate in, and I mean that in a, in the highest praise way, desolate landscape, um, just like vast salt flats and sort of mountains in the distance and turquoise lakes gleaming in these salt flats. It's, it's spectacular, very lunar looking. Um, and you would never think that like three different nations or cultures would have, um, such a vested interest in, in seizing this land. So biking through this place that looks to all appearances like a a wilderness, um, there aren't, there hasn't even been a a long history. I don't believe of, of like Tibetan encampments in this area because it is, you know, there's hardly a blade of grass. Um, but being in this place that looks so wild and yet was so tied up politically and so fraught politically. Um, that was a, a surreal experience. Um, and it really sparked my obsession with borders. I, I finished that trip and went off to grad school and ended up studying the history of science for two years, which was really an excuse to study the history of exploration and mapping and surveying and, and, um, the ways that borders shape and shatter our world. And so that's what I, what I did for a few years. So by the time we decided to finish the Silk Road, we'd left untraveled borders were this sort of driving. I was seeing everything through the the framework of, of borders and, and not just political borders, but um, yeah, just ideas of limits. And um, that's, that's certainly a, a strong thread all the way through the, the trip for us and, and the book. Well, it's interesting how many layers of abstraction borders can run through. I mean, when I was interviewing you by email for the book's educational supplement at the end, the little Q&A, 
um, I was in Sumatra and I had to go to ATMs to get money. And so in a sense, I I felt like I was crossing a border because I could only get about $100 of Indonesian money at a time. And it was this weird formality where suddenly to get things done in Sumatra, I had to cross this abstract border of an ATM. And you talk about yeah. in, the, in the book about like the birds don't care about borders, but you were stuck in Central Asia, I think once for almost a month just because of bureaucracy. So in a way, the concrete yeah. form of the border becomes bureaucracy. How did you, how did, how did the border, mani- how did the idea of borders manifest itself uh, as you traveled? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes in very concrete and frustrating ways, like trying to get money out of ATMs that won't cooperate and um, trying to get visas for countries that, that, don't welcome tourists or at least not tourists that write things. <laughs> um, yeah. So we were, we were constantly bashing up against different kinds of, of borders and, and, and in most forms, borders are pretty absurd things. Like they're very arbitrary constructs with incredible power. Um, but you, you, the frustration of them is, is sensing how arbitrary they are and also since like, you know, someone's always benefiting from a border, uh, you know, with the ATM, you know, banks, money moves more freely than anyone on this, on this planet. Um, and someone's profiting from that. Um, in terms of bureaucracy, it, it often is sort of like huge government infrastructure, um, and inefficiency and just people on payroll, doing, um, arbitrary jobs, like granting visas. I feel like there's often this tension between the convenience of life in this globalized, technologicalized era and the, the yearnings of actual experience. I mean, since I've started this podcast, I sort of startle myself by how much I'm sort of the grumpy old guy complaining about smartphones, right? You know, <laughs> right. Talking about how it's not how it used to be. But in a sense, like putting your smartphone away is kind of like walking for people in the era of trains, you know? Right. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering how you how you balance the the conveniences of of technology, like ATMs or certain border procedures, versus the actual raw experience of of being in in a real place and savoring it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like. You, I, I remember very distinctly traveling when, you know, finding an internet cafe was like, uh, a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that may or may not exist, um, in a, in a far flung place. And on our first bike trip on the Silk Road in 2006, um, you know, there was no, maybe there was social media then, but if there was, I wasn't on it. And, um, certainly cell phones were not common. And I, I would go like more than a month without being able to be in touch with my parents. And they just knew that no news is good news. And, um, it's changed so much, you know, all the way across the Tibetan plateau. Now there's better cell reception. I don't even have cell reception where I live in Northern BC, but all the way across the Tibetan plateau, there's like a high speed internet available and and cell service. It's pretty astonishing how quickly things have changed. And I do have a lot of nostalgia. I think I am, I can be a grumpy old woman about, um, how the world is now and how people travel now, but there are enormous conveniences. I think you wrote about 
sort of surrendering to the smartphone and how how handy it was in in some of your recent travels and um i i think yeah the key is balance and lord knows i'm i'm pretty terrible at it i mean part of the reason i live where i do and live the way i do in the boonies um is to kind of isolate myself from from being tempted by things like i don't know binging on netflix because i will if you know when i'm in a city i'm just sucked right into to these technologies and, and systems because they're designed to suck us in and I'm, I'm no saint on that front. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out, I think like everyone, like what it is so convenient and so um, expansive to have all these answers at your fingertips about, you know, the hours that the embassy is open instead of taking a taxi there and finding it's closed and, um, you know, it can really streamline travel, but is that really what we're traveling for, for efficiency and, and experience to be streamlined? Um, so somewhere there's gotta be, gotta be the balance, but, uh, I myself tend to be an extremist. So I'm like all in or all out. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, even the idea of balance is, is not a good of a headline as technology is ruining everything or technology is saving everything. Right. there's an extent to which, you know, there's the there's this very strong spiritual idea of being in the moment and experiencing the present moment. And travel is, is really a gift in that it allows us to get out of our habits and routines and experience the present moment. But, um, like, there's some great Mars metaphors you bring into your Central Asian travels. And it occurred to me, you know, when I was interviewing you for the via email for the, for the book Q&A, yeah. that even in Sumatra, I was swimming in Lake Mananjau and I was thinking about Twin River Swim Club in Wichita, Kansas, you know, that I right. think there's an extent to which our imagination, like you said, travel is often nine-tenths imagination. Even without our smartphone in our pocket, sometimes... We're not there. <laughs> so, sometimes we're not there. So, like, what's the argument for being in Central Asia and dreaming of Mars or being in Sumatra and dreaming of Kansas? I mean, it feels like, in a way, that's kind of part of the joy of travel. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and it's a really interesting point. I think maybe it's in in making these sort of leaps, you know, in not being in Sumatra, not being in Uzbekistan, being on Mars, being... Uh, different time and different place in your, your head, it's still, your imagination is working and you're, you're sort of using the place you are, the moment you're in as, as kind of this, this launching point for dreaming or, or nostalgia, maybe, um, whatever direction in time you, you move in. And I think there's something generative about that and enriching about that. Um, you know, I'll never think of Uzbekistan without thinking of, biking at night under this incredible canopy of stars and feeling like I was traveling through outer space. Um, and I don't think it diminishes Uzbekistan to, to have it connected that way to, to, to the stars. Um, and maybe it's that technology is sort of this unnervingly fast and unimaginative shortcut to other places, um, Mm. that sort of rips you out of a place and as opposed to connects one place to another, I don't know. I'm, it feels different in a way that can't quite explain or, or give expression to. 
Well, you talk about some of the philosophical ideas under travel, like the idea that we sort of assume danger with risk, but we never really talk about, well, maybe routine is dangerous in its own existential way back home. Um, yeah. And in a way, I guess one danger of having that smartphone in your pocket, and again, I'm not arguing one way or another, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but one danger is that it allows us to fall back in a routine, even on the other side of the world, to watch that Netflix movie when we're in Kazakhstan or to yeah. listen, listen to Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast interviewing Kate Harris <laughs> right. when you're in Peru. So, um, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> right. There you go. Uh, so, so what do you make of that? I mean, is this, I, I'm sure there's a point at which people were clicking their tongues and saying, Oh, those steamships, they're really ruling sailor sailing right. ships, you know? Um, so, uh, what would you say about like the danger, the sudden dangers of routine in places where da- where routine wasn't possible a generation ago? Yeah, well, I think yeah, you're. I certainly travel for the reasons you expressed. You know, wanting wanting to step out of my everyday existence, the, the sort of routines that define it back home, and and remember that that life can unfurl in a different way, in a different place. Um, and I I do think you can't live two places at once. And I, and maybe that sounds contradictory when I talk about being in outer space while in Uzbekistan, but, um, I think it's less being in two places at once than, than seeing that those places are kind of the same in, in some like central experiential way. And maybe it's, you know, if you have a smartphone and you're being bombarded with emails about, you know, what awaits you back home or the things you should be doing, um, to do list kind of chases you around because you can't leave behind the routine. I, I can't help but think it would just strip the experience of, of the richness it could have wherever you are to be caught up in that other, other world. I wonder sometimes how much time Marco Polo spent fantasizing about things and places other than the place where he was. I mean, because one, one example, because it's so normal. One example you give in your book is, is eating at restaurants in Canada when you were young and seeing posters of China and dreaming of China and then going to China and realizing that their restaurants have posters of Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So longing in different ways. (laughs) So, so is this just a normal human thing or do you think that there, there is sort of a platonic ideal of Marco Polo being exactly in the world where he was? I think he definitely dreamed of, I don't know, something back in Venice, the bridges in Venice. He missed the bridges in Venice. Um, I, I think that's a very human impulse. And there's like nostalgia has a sort of positive tinge when we think about it because it, there's a, like our yearning, there's something beautiful in, in our yearning and it, it can, when we're homesick, and we're in Uzbekistan, but we're missing, missing home. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a, a bad thing. It can heighten your appreciation for, for things you didn't necessarily appreciate before. Um, yeah, like yearning, nostalgia, those are such big aspects of travel for me. And, and so the perspective you can have on what you've left behind when you're in a different place, um, you can't you can't get that just going around the block at home. Well, I think I think that there is an advantage too in in the way that travel 
sort of compels you to be lost. Again, if you can let your smartphone let yourself be lost. You, I think you quote the Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer talking about how there are certain clearings in the forest that can only be found by people who are lost. Yeah, I love that poem. Yeah, lostness is a quality that we're kind of losing because of technology. Uh, the ability to be truly, truly MIA. It's easy to say, yeah, being lost is good, but then actually, you know, sort of surrendering yourself to being lost or doing something silly like getting lost on purpose is is a weirder <laughs> equation. Uh, another line that you bring up in your book is the idea that that hesitation is the hardest border. And I wonder if maybe like the first step, regardless of how much Netflix you can watch on the other side of the world, getting <laughs> out getting out your front door is often the most important step in the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Just committing to go. Um, and then following up that, that commitment with, you know, booking a plane ticket. So you're really, the momentum is, is building for you to, to, you know, escape velocity is building. Um, that is definitely the hardest part. I mean, the number of people I've, I've met in sort of doing book events and, and sharing the story since the book came out, who have said like, Oh, I would love to do that. But and they have sort of a long list of constraints and, and, you know, of course they're very valid things that can keep people at home, um, finances and, and time and, um, health. And I, I certainly don't begrudge people that, yeah, those are very real things. They're very real anchors. Um, but I do think it's sort of up to you to free yourself from, from them to an extent. Um, like I definitely didn't have money. I had a, an abundance of time just cause I was young and a lot is possible just with, with, with time. You don't need much money to do things. And, and so I think the, the borders that people build up, Oh, I can't do this because, um, they both have validity, but also maybe not as much as people ascribe to them. And, and, it's incredibly freeing when you, you know, you do book a plane ticket and commit to doing something or you, you buy a bike and decide you're going to one day going to bike around your neighborhood for a little bit. And then you're just going to set off across a continent. Um, it's an exhilarating, a really giddy feeling and, and, and expansive feeling. And I, I would hope that more people could experience that. And I think once you've done that once made some like radical decision to do something, uh, out of the ordinary for you, it gets easier. You, you, you understand the rewards on the far side of that hesitation and are more willing to make that leap. Yeah. There's a lot of fears tied up in, in taking that first leap. And, and you bring up a couple, you say that there's the fear of disappointment, but then there's also fear of transformation, which I thought was an interesting yeah. observation. I mean, there's the, there's the fear of change, you know, which keeps us inside our house, but then there's also, or the, the uh, but then there's also this fear of transformation, you know, this, this, um, this f- fear of deep change that travel can engender. Why do you think, why do you think the idea of transformation and change is so scary? Yeah, it's well, we sort of put travel or, or can tend to put travel on this pedestal of like, oh, it's, you know, it's transformative, it's meaningful, just in and of itself, um, you will be changed by what you experience. And, and that puts a lot of pressure on travel as this transformative force. Um, and also, a lot of people might not want that. Um, you know, a lot of us are pretty comfortable where we are, and maybe don't want 
a radical upending of our, our foundational beliefs or foundational understandings of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you take a trip thinking it'll change your life, it might not mm-hmm. change your life just because you you've anticipated that. And I think you have to be open when you travel to being changed in ways you don't expect at all. You might realize you're actually, um, not as, as brave and intrepid as you thought setting out. And, you know, the smallest things like waiting in line at a embassy for the 10th day in a row, um, to get a visa that may or may not be granted ever that that's like your tipping point and you just lose you lose your cool. And I I can't imagine who I'm talking about right now, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It it can show you're strong in ways you don't expect and weak in ways you don't expect. And, um, that's hard stuff to, to confront. Um, so we, we want to be changed by travel and we don't want it at the same moment. And sometimes it delivers and sometimes it doesn't. I think sometimes, again, to, to, to bang around on technology some more, like in the Instagram age, it's easier to assume those difficulties of travel don't exist and they can feel yeah. personal. They can feel personal when they happen to you, when they don't seem to be <laughs> happening to the Instagram hero. Um, <laughs> so, so that, that feels real. I, I think also uh, another thing that, that you have addressed in your writing is that relationship between being abroad and being home. And not unlike myself, you have found a home in the middle of nowhere. Mine is in, in the in the prairies of Kansas, which is close to where I grew up. But you're up in British Columbia. Is it pronounced Atlan or Atlan? Atlan, yeah. Atlan, yeah. So how did you discover that place? What appealed to it? And what's your relationship? I know that you're not there right now. So what what role does this home play in your adventurous life that you've created for yourself? Yeah, well, I... I came across Atlan when I was a undergrad. I, you know, I was on the science path and I was studying geology and I had to take a, a field course as part of my program of study. And so I signed up to do this glaciology field program, like summer field course in Alaska. And I'd never seen a glacier before. I could barely ski. I mean, I grew up not in the mountains, not surrounded by an abundance of snow in Ontario. And, uh, I was so excited to, to do this course. And it started in Juneau, Alaska, and it finished in Canada in this place called Atlan and Atlan's like barely a, a dot on the map. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. I, like I was excited about the ice field itself and spending time and this sort of infinity of, of white with mountains poking up through it. And, and it was the most amazing experience. It was like six weeks of, of being in this treeless world of black and white and blue sky. Um, and then the program finished in Atlan. So we descended the ice field and came to this bright turquoise glacial lake, this massive lake. And it took like three hours on a boat to get to the other end of the lake where the, the town was. And I was just instantly charmed by this place, not just because it's butting up against this spectacular wilderness and then Juno ice field, but the town itself is so quirky. You know, it's about 400 people live there. It's at the end, it's the dead end of a hundred kilometer detour off the Alaska highway. So you really don't end up there unless you intend to. Um, and you know, it's all these like crumbling, colorful buildings left over from the gold rush. Um, a place really without artifice. Like there's no, certainly no Starbucks, there's no stop sign. 
Hmm. Um, and just in the few days we spent there as part of the program and to give a community presentation, um, I could, I could sense it was a, a very quirky, unique place. And I was further sold by the fact that real estate there was incredibly cheap. Um, I mean, Atlin is far from everywhere. Like Juneau, Alaska is the nearest city as the bird flies, but you have to go to Whitehorse to get to a, a proper airport, um, in the Yukon. And it's kind of been protected by that isolation and it's kept property prices down. So if a place that beautiful were in, I don't know, Montana or even further south in BC, it would just be overrun sort of the way like Banff is, is overrun. Um, but Atlin is still incredibly affordable. And, and certainly when I came through as a student in 2004, there was an Island for sale in this spectacular turquoise Lake, you know, next to an ice field surrounded by mountains. And this Island was for sale for 30 grand wow. Canadian. And I, and I, I went back to school that fall and I tried, I petitioned all my friends. I was like, we each throw in a thousand bucks of our, of our student loan <laughs> scholarship money. Um, we could collectively buy, we just need 30 of us. We could buy this Island in this spectacular place. And I think I got like five people on board and it all fell apart, but it, Atlin was sort of in the back of my head all through my studies as like the place I would love to end up and the place that actually seemed feasible. Like I could actually conceive of saving up enough money to, to buy a little cabin in the woods, um, and, and just live there. And I knew just living there would be an adventure because of the context, you know, it's just nature going about its business for a hundred kilometers, hundreds of kilometers in every direction, thousands in a few directions. Huh. So it was always in the back of my head. And, and as I was biking the Silk Road, um, it was sort of my, that was what I would fantasize about when I was particularly tired of packing up every day and setting up camp every night and always being on the move and never really settling in any one place or feeling like I had a deep connection to any one place on the, the road. Um, I just fantasized about this cabin in Atlin where you could, you know, you could go out biking for the day, like have a really hard, beautiful bike ride, but then come home to a warm cabin at night. And, uh, yeah, it just sort of grew larger and larger in my mind. And I knew when I finished Silk Road, I had sort of burned all the bridges, um, that would have led me to other places and other careers before hitting the Silk Road. And I knew that's where I wanted to, to end up. And, and I did. So it took like a, a, almost a decade from when I first went there to when I actually ended up there. But it's an amazing place to be a writer because it's, it's so affordable and, you know, there's not much to spend money on in the first place. There's, you know, you, you don't go to the movies and Atlin. <laughs> um, there aren't really, there are restaurants sort of pop up and go out of business in a year or two and then pop up again. But huh. really what, what people do there is get outside and get together. So community is, is, is the real binding force. And, 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 you know, I went there initially, I was compelled by the wilderness and ultimately what, what keeps me and my partner there is this incredible community of artists and adventurers and gold miners and, um, indigenous people. And it's, it's a pretty radical place. Who, who bought the Island and, and do you ever go there? Oh, so someone, someone bought it and then it sold again, like five years later for $300,000. Oh man. And someone built this gorgeous cabin cottage out there and I've paddled by it. And I just cursed the lack of (laughs) (laughs) 
lack of means I had at the time. It would have been a, a really good buy. One detail I know that's come into your life since I communicated with you last is a pilot's license. Yeah. Uh, and so so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, is that connected to the like the isolation of where you live? Is it connected to your dreams of Mars and the aerospace industry? How did that come about? Yeah, all of the above really. Um, I've always wanted to learn to fly. Uh, flying, you know, never mind a space shuttle, but like a, a single engine plane. Um, my grandfather was a pilot and had a tiny little Cessna. My uncle had a tiny little Cessna and was a pilot. And my dad is obsessed with flight in its various forms. Currently, um, he's obsessed with building like RC models of planes and flying them. And it was always something I wanted to do and could never afford to do because it's not, it's not cheap getting a private pilot's license. Um, I probably spent 15 grand doing it. Um, and it really only became possible when my book. So I, I wrote my book, um, for a Canadian publisher and then it got picked up by a U.S. publisher and they essentially paid me the same advance over again, which wasn't very much, but in, in my world, it felt like a lot, like 25 grand. Mm-hmm. And, um, thanks to a very supportive partner, uh, I got to burn that second advance that felt like free money because I'd already done the work of writing the book. I wasn't expecting to get it. And then there it was. Um, so it made sense to sort of use one dream, which was the Silk Road trip and, and writing this book to, to propel the next, which was learning to fly. And it's really hit home for me that you don't, you don't need to go far. It's really about getting just a different angle on things, different slant on the world. And it for the familiar to become strange again. And that's really what, what travel is, is all about. So it's been, it's been amazing and it's very meditative being up in the air. It's just for someone that normally deals with such abstractions, you know, words on a computer screen or on a journal page. Um, and there's no consequence if you, you know, delete a sentence, you write another sentence, but up in a plane, the consequences are so, so in your face, and serious, you know, you, you, you do this with a throttle, you do this with a control wheel, like things happen. And it feels, uh, I like that, that weight to it, that, that sense of like tangible action and reaction. And it's a nice counterbalance to the sort of flighty, dreamy writing life. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting new twist in your travel and adventure career. And, you know, I was thinking just to leave people with something that you, you once dreamed about Marco Polo, and then you realized, well, his travels are sort of more business-oriented than I really like. And then you got into science as a way to open a door to adventure. But then that was a little bit more procedural and maybe a little less interesting than you thought it would be. So how have you refined your travel and adventure philosophy, and, and what might you advise to listeners about letting adventure into your life in a dynamic way, whether or not it involves a pilot's license? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... Adventure is, you don't have to go to the far flung corners of the world to find it. And that's really what, what flight and even just daily life in Atlin at the cabin has taught me. Um, you know, daily life really can be an adventure. It's just sort of the, the state of awakeness you bring, bring to it. And I guess it's kind of a Buddhist in the Buddhists have this, have had this figured out forever. Um, when you're living in the moment, that itself is an adventure that you're, you're sort of so deeply sunk into whatever you're doing and, um, bringing a, you know, they talk about, I guess 
Zen Buddhists talk about beginner's mind, like coming at the world and everyone and everything you meet with sort of a beginner's mind, like never thinking you have it figured out, never thinking you, you know the answer, uh, the answers. And for me, exploration has become much more, it's like my wanderlust has gone pretty local. And I think it can for, for just about anyone. And I realize I, you know, I, it's, I've had a pretty privileged life of getting to see so many places and, you know, it's all well and good for me to be like, Oh, I'm, you know, pretty satisfied staying home now. Um, I understand those that have never had the chance to go in the first place that that might not be the solution to wanderlust they're looking for. But I do think we can find excitement and strangeness, especially strangeness every day, everywhere. If, if only you look closely enough or look at things from a slightly different perspective. Um, and so that would be, I don't know, maybe advice is the wrong word, but just, just maybe give more credit to um, the everyday and, and what's around you. And it's easy to sort of fantasize or, or fantasize about or glorify um, the truly sort of alien and unknown, you know, whether it's Mars or Uzbekistan, I keep, I keep saying Uzbekistan. It's like my example for the far flung. It's actually not that far, but uh, yeah, it's, it's around us all the time. And I think travel is much more a state of awareness than, than the act of locomotion. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Kate's book, Lands of Lost Borders, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.